family. This is Davon Love, the, uh, Director of Public Policy of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I'm here with my big brother, Jamie Wooten from Collectively. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, man. It's an honor to be with you. All right, man. So, look, tell, tell the listeners um, just a little bit about Collectively. Well, your work generally. Sure. First, start with that, and then about what Collectively is. So, uh, I launched Collectively in 2019 to be a resource for those to seek to find, fund, and partner with black social change organizations. Some of my Backstory. I used to be a director of an organization called the Collective Banking Group, so working with over 200 churches in faith-based economic development. Went on and launched Kinetic Strategies, working in movement spaces around issue education, digital strategies, social media, and the like. And it was after the murder of Freddie Gray that we came together and began to form, even though our work goes beyond before <laughs> Freddie Gray, but came together at that time to form Baltimore United for Change. And during that time, creating the Skills Bank as an on-ramp for folks who weren't necessarily on the ground, but wanted to plug in. So I'm a mental health provider, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, how might I be involved? And we had over 260 individuals and organizations join that Skills Bank. We sort of used that as a coalition internally. And the goal collectively in 2019 was how could we create a more face-forward platform, begin to invite all black-led organizations, and begin to really mobilize resources and support black-led organizations in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So, so with that, because I'm Two things jump out at me. One is what you you talked about the collective banking group mm-hmm. um, and about you know what you were trying to do there, um, and also the piece around um, black led organizations, a skills bank for people that want to plug in. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you know on this podcast, you know, with with several guests, you know, I've wanted people to talk about is this notion of human infrastructure mm-hmm. and and how necessary it is for revolutionary political activity. Yeah. I think a lot of times it's really abstract, like the actual mundane, mm-hmm. everyday things that a person has to do and the organization's got to do to build infrastructure to operationalize, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the work that people want to bring into That's fruition. Right. So if you could talk about that concept, particularly in the context of like some of the work you did with the collective banking group and then also with what you hope to do with collective. Yeah, definitely. It was um, Reverend Albert Klee, who was one of the founders of Destroying the Black Madonna, said white supremacy, racism is institutional. If you want to counter it, you must develop counter institutions. So he was looking really at the black church as a counter institution, telling folks don't leave the black church, but co-opt the black church and make it this liberatory institution. And, and that brings me even to thinking about the work of our, our dear brother, um, Reverend Heber Brown, and the black church food security network, right? We still always talk about, man, this church is on every corner. We don't need all these churches on every corner. But what if we start looking at these churches as assets? It would mean we have pipelines and distributions, not only all across America, we got distribution outlets all across the world. And so he's doing a great job, again, that too being birthed in 2015, connecting black farmers with black churches here in Baltimore, now North Carolina, Midwest, really building out that infrastructure that you need to really begin to move the products that we, that we have and services we have within our community. At the Collective Banking Group, we were able to do over $300 million in loans to churches. I was in headquarters in Prince George's County, so one of the richest counties for black folk. Well, we have folks are building $24 million churches and other things. Um, we're definitely trying to get on the move to be more politically conscious, but still that infrastructure that it takes to mobilize our resources, sustain institutions. And that's some of the, you know, I had a board at the time, a collective banking group of all pastors, and um, it had its challenges. <laughs> so when it, what brought me to collectively was that sort of model of the ways in which uh, we've always mobilized resources. We have this technology, whether you're looking at the Black Church or the Free African Society. I talked yesterday about um, the Galilean 
Fisherman Society here in Baltimore started in 1856. Um, Benevolent Society went on to have 5,000 members, started a church in Virginia, had over $250,000 in land, um, created a school in Calvert County. And by the time 1897 had chapters from New England to the Gulf of Mexico, over 50,000 members. So that type of technology of mutual aid, and even what moves us even to philanthropy, right? Our work predates this sort of formalized philanthropy. We've always had these ways of mobilizing resources. So collectively, it's looking at that technology that has always existed in our community. How do we mobilize from that sort of asset-based framework, that black genius framework, pulling from what we already have in community? And so just to follow up on that, because I remember I was reading um, the compilation of, of Thomas Sankara's speeches mm-hmm. um, and um, and reading his speeches. You know, one of the things that he mentions, he talks about <clears throat> what Burkina Faso will need as it transitions mm-hmm. to a revolutionary um, government, like having actually governed. And he actually he actually mentions like food distribution networks. As something that's important to build out. <clears throat> and, you know, one of my concerns when we think about just like the political discourses around revolution mm-hmm. has to do with how much energy is being put into developing the systems that manage some that's of right. that. You know what I mean? And so I imagine that like the loans that y'all were doing with the collective uh, banking group and the work that you're doing with collectively, which is like actually building an infrastructure that can just dis- that can distribute resources mm-hmm. like it actually takes human infrastructure to actually distribute resources yeah. and really rendering that as something that is more legible to those that are engaged and want to do black liberation work for black people that's right you know what i mean yeah yeah i, I think of Kwame Nkrumah as well of like what i say like the difference between activist craft and statecraft like when you become when you have to govern mm-hmm. And what does that look like as opposed to when we are, and even our work around the Children and Youth Fund, right? When we are advocating um, against this $100 million youth jail, but who has the container to catch that $100 million if we do revolutionary policy, right? So we have to build those institutions so we can catch that $100 million to build the type of institutions and responses for our youth that we need and deserve in our community. So one of the things that, you know, anyone who goes to Collectively's website and looks at social media, you know, one of the things, you know, I see you talk about and I say reflected. Um, on the website um, and the pages are the importance of narratives, particularly narratives around black capacity. Could you talk a little bit about why like narratives of black capacity are so important, particularly in your work with collectively? Yeah, I often say narrative power goes hand in hand with resource mobilization, that the stories we tell are extremely important, even for our own selves, that are, it's important for our community to know that uh, we have these gifts and talent within our community. So when we started with the first phase of asset mapping, over 200 black-led organizations in greater Baltimore, folks were shocked about that. Like, they didn't realize that we had all these organizations doing amazing work. Um, we're often competing against a nightly news narrative that often pathologizes black bodies, and even this nonprofit sector that often moves from this sort of deficit place. And so it's very important that we control our narrative. And so for us, when we first launched in, in 2019, I said, I'm going to spend the first three years, like, just base building, trust building, like, all the relationship work that we really need to operationalize grants. So even though we do these, these monthly micro-grants now, over $1 million in no-strings-attached grants, beyond the grants, it really was about trust, because we know we're 
try have to counter those narratives <laughs> that you can't trust folks like who's going to give this money who what's happening with the money so if we can operationalize a thousand dollars to move to a million dollars how can we even dream beyond that sort of hundred million dollars mm-hmm. and mobilize resources mm-hmm. yeah. and I think um you mentioned philanthropy and you think about like a lot of the institutions that claim they want to help black people but carry those those narratives mm-hmm. of pathology um, and I know in in my work you know we talk a lot about the way that philanthropy does that in the way that it does grant making and just just how you know those strings mm-hmm. are often um, justified by these narratives of black pathology two two questions one um, could you talk about in maybe in more concrete ways some of the ways that philanthropy is complicit mm-hmm. in, in black people's oppression and and maybe talk about <clears throat> what are some strategic ways to engage philanthropy mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think the build on that of just the ways in which historically they have pathologized black bodies, and so there's often this sort of deficit approach. And so even when I'm, you know, looking at some of the black-led organizations in Baltimore, and even in their own mission statements, they're also pathologizing black bodies or coming from a more deficit space. And so it's my challenge has been the philanthropy is really to focus on the black genius and the ways in which. Um, this brilliant talent that exists within our community. We did last year, uh, or this year, 28 Days of Black Futures, asking black-led organizations, you know, what would a fully funded black futures look like as a way to begin to dream about what this work is, as opposed to um, Damon Cooper, who runs Project Numa, just wrote a piece maybe about a few months ago on trauma, right, and the ways in which he has to often repeat his narrative of the violence that he endured in order to get a check. Right. And so I see that a lot in the community, the way in which philanthropy wants black folks to relive the trauma as opposed to their genius and move from an asset base. So I think they're often focused on the problems within community as opposed to solutions and the genius that already exists. And when you do that, it often says the answers or the savior is outside of community, right? That the answers don't exist within community. And particularly for our young people, I think that becomes a problem where they see the savior as folks outside of our community, as opposed to the us already there within community. I think um, I was a fellow at the Association of Black Foundation Executives last year, and one of my challenges to philanthropy has been to fund, one, intermediaries, to fund place-based organizations, right? So we began to base build. I always say partnership, not paternalism. And so the reason that we do no strings attached is to be somewhat disruptive, in the philanthropic space to say, like, you can give black-led organizations um, funding with no strings attached. You can make multi-year commitments to black-led organizations. So I think it's important, though, that those intermediaries are being funded because what we saw happen during the pandemic after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, was black funds beginning to come on board all around the country, but often inside of the foundations. So I know some dope people doing great work who created black funds inside of their foundations. But because we know, like, the fickleness of foundations, they might have a five-year run. Right? But what does it mean to really shift resources to trusted intermediaries in community that are working on behalf and with and alongside black folks? Like, the work that we do is not hierarchical. Like, we, are, we see ourselves as one organization within the ecosystem, our role is around resource mobilization, but that's not a hierarchical, hierarchical role. Um, we don't see our, our folks that receive funding as grantees, but more partners 
within within community. So I think philanthropy could shift much more money to place-based organizations and allow community uh, to participate more in the ways in which these funds are distributed to community. Mm. Now, there's some people that may hear this conversation. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, revolutionary political activity. Mm. Um, you know, we live in a society structured on global white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, heteropatriarchy, you know, all these different systems. And particularly on the issue of capitalism, mm. um, you know, this this is tightrope that I think is, is important to walk. Mm where we talk about the importance, as you described it, as like resource mobilization Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't affirm the logic of capitalism, Mm -hmm. but recognizing the importance of sustainable resource Mm -hmm. development for organizations to exist. Um, And I often find one of the places, like when I'm talking to other folks that are engaged in movement work or movement activity, I'm often astonished at the extent to which there aren't conversations around how to financially sustain organizations. And so, you know, a lot of the, you know, other activist organizations that I encounter are extremely grant dependent. I've had conversations with folks within that system who will acknowledge, will acknowledge the limitations of it. Mm -hmm. They'll acknowledge the limitations of it, but they, that's all they know. You know what I mean? Um, there's um I was I was interviewed by Barbara Ransby. Uh for those who aren't familiar, she did um the biography on Ella Baker, mm-hmm. one of the most well known and, and very well written biographies of Ella Baker. She was asked in twenty eighteen to do um a book that basically looked at activist organizations around the country to document the mm-hmm. movement and LBS was actually in it. She interviewed me for it. And it and it was just such a contrast when it was the description of our organization mm-hmm. as like having more of a corporate structure, CEO, CEO, which to me was like, you know, we have an organization that we're a business, we're not a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. but it seemed like such a jarring difference for people. So I've said all that, just if you can just add or reflect on just that tightrope, you know, in terms of understanding the importance of sustaining organizations, but recognizing, you know, we fight against global capitalism as a part of white supremacy right. and like how to how to walk that line. Yeah, I remember I remember that book <laughs> in that critique. Um, and I think often like folks see um, a for profit entity as the same as capitalism, where you could have a nonprofit entity and be just as extractive. Mm-hmm. And you can have a for-profit. So I look at them as both as containers, right? So mm-hmm. you could be for-profit or non-profit. You could be for-profit, pay fair wages. It could be a cooperative model. So there's all ways to be just and righteous. And the ideas of, like, marketplace have always exist pre-capital. So it's really how we engage in capital. Mm-hmm. When I came to collectively, it was sort of understanding this critique of the non-profit industrial complex, looking at this work as a place-based model and saying, like, how are we going to fund this work and get free <laughs> from some of these systems if we are engaging business, and particularly black business owners in Baltimore? And again, some of the data is 95% of black businesses are solopreneurs, right? They are not right, big C capitalists, right? So there was an article written years ago on like black capitalism will not save us. And true, at the same time, I feel like they put in that big container mom and pop shops that are being run in community. My dad dropped out in 10th grade at Baltimore um, at Carver Vocational High School here in the city. I went on to open five dry cleaners and several nightclubs in the city. And through that, 
was able to fund sports teams in the city and like really contribute and give back. I often say they often want to give us projects and programs, but if we had access to capital, we would, we would fund our own projects and programs. So I think it's very important that we tap in, particularly in place-based ecosystem work, that we're tapping into the business owners in our community that are often carving out a certain way to be um, self-sufficient, self-determined, and he's yet to be United States of America. So my dad wouldn't be a capitalist. He was a black man with a 10th grade education who was trying to navigate, was able to create a business that was able to take care of his family and sustain institutions within community. So, so I'm looking at that particular model. I've always had this sort of hybrid model of for-profit in the container to be able to raise funds as well. Um, and what I've seen in movement spaces nationally is most of them are heavily dependent upon foundations, they aren't, to your point, are not thinking about how do we sustain ourselves beyond foundation money, which then puts you in a very tricky spot. And what leads us to often this sort of campaign type of organizing that is really transactional. We pop in, we move as the Democratic Party moves around priorities of issues. When you begin to create your own base. I heard you describe it as reactivism. Yeah, often it's reactivism that is in response to or reaction to whatever the top narratives are. We cannot build the type of institutions where we do holistic work unless we are funding it ourselves. Right? Collectively would have never off the top got funded. Like everybody said, well, we don't understand this. So we gotta build our institutions. I listened to the sister um, Brittany from B three sixty. She talked about, you know, six years later now some people are saying, Ah, I see what you're doing, connecting biking. And STEM together, Heber Brown and his work around Black Church Food Security Network. This is all genius work that's being recognized around the country that Baltimore's philanthropic institutions are very slow to get. So if we don't build the type of institutions and infrastructure we need, it's important. We got hairdressers and barbershop owners and restaurant owners. Again, who I don't see as big C capitalists. I see as folks building out more autonomous organizations to be self-determined to serve community. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, to round out, can you say a little, about, little bit about some of the work that Collectively is doing now moving forward? Yeah, so we just, we're launching our cohort in 20, well, in December 2022. So we launched this winter. And we're excited about that. Again, we said that the first two to three years, we were just going to relationship build and base build, right? We thought that was extremely important. Even had folks who wanted us to get involved in more political advocacy. Mm -hmm. And we just thought, like, no, like, I, I realize, I often say ideology is the glue that holds decentralized organizations together. Mm -hmm. But I begin to realize relationships trump ideology, mm -hmm. right? So I've seen folks who have different ideology but who are in relationships mm -hmm. who may say, Davon, you tripping, but you're still my boy. And mm -hmm. so I said, I want to spend time well, one-on-ones for three years, just building relationships and the type of trust we need, and now move to being a more intentional container. Mm -hmm. So we'll launch um, in December with our first cohort called Connect. It's also around resource mobilization. It's around relationships, peer-to-peer -peer learning. We'll take them on a journey up until August where we have our We Give Black Fest, which will now be our annual festival, around fundraising, resource mobilization, narrative change work. So we'll continue this work around narrative change, capacity building, but the type of capacity I think that we need, that real peer-to-peer, -peer, capacity mm -hmm. is often that sort of negative word, mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to black-led organizations because they don't get the type of capital 
that we need. Right. I said we have capacity if we had capital. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's really trying to get mobilized resources so we can build independent organizations, but also that peer-to-peer network. So folks understand like what we have already as a community, that we have all that we need, and then how do we leverage that to get more resources that we need. Got it. Yeah. All right, man. Look, appreciate you for being with us, man. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate you. All right, bro. Peace. Peace.